This podcast is sponsored by Coastal Leather Supply, created by leather crafters for leather crafters, supplying premium leather tools and all your other leatherworking needs, specialised in vegetable tan leather such as Buttero, Pueblo and many others. They ship internationally and are trusted in the Australian and New Zealand leatherworking community. Visit coastalleathersupply.com.au. Welcome to episode 16 of the Joseph M. Leather Podcast. Today I'm with Harry from Bucklehurst Leather. Harry is from England and makes belts and wallets. He's, he's particular about the leather he uses as he wants to use high quality leather for the items he makes. He also has a YouTube channel with currently 102,000 subscribers where he shares leather craft tips, builds, shoemaking, business tips, as well as blacksmithing, woodworking and other videos. He also has a passion for supporting the MDS Patient Support Group, which is a charity that supports people with MDS blood cancer. His product, Practical Guide to Setting Up a Craft Business, on his website under the Plans tab, supports his charity with all the money that is made on this item going towards the MDS Patient Support Group. At this stage, he has raised approximately 1892 Australian dollars. Welcome, Harry. Hi, Joseph. Thank you very much for having me. Very pleased to be here and no. very pleased to get the invite. So thank you. <laughs> no, that's all good. Thanks for um, all your videos. It was good in the early days of my leather craft. Oh, that's great. I always like to hear that because, you know, you, one does these videos and I occasionally get some really nice comments and it's just the one or two really nice comments that make it so worthwhile. You know, I've had people come up to me and say that it's like they've reunited you know father and son doing something or things like that so it's lovely <laughs> anyway, wow. it's good to hear wow over leathercraft as well yeah i know yes yeah woodwork in that particular case oh, but yeah. yes it's, uh, yeah yeah that's good because you've your, your video your channel's been around for quite a while um so then how did you get into leathercraft and and yeah, um, a bit of an odd journey, really. I have always had woodwork as a hobby, and I've been quite sort of active on what is called the green woodworking scene, and that's where you work the wood when it's fresh off a tree. So it's very like traditional old-fashioned woodwork. And you end up using a lot of axes and knives, and you spend hours putting a keen edge on all these tools, and, of course, once you've got a keen edge, you don't want to lose it. So in comes leather tool covers. And that's how I got going. It, it was basically making some for myself. And then a few friends asked about, could I make them some leather tool covers? And I then thought, well, actually, I could, you know, make quite a few of these. Um, spoon carving was taking off in a big way at the time and still is. So I started making special tool rolls. I had an old Singer sewing machine, a really yeah. old Singer 31, and I was bashing out lots of tool rolls. And I got into it from there. I just loved it. It's wow. making, it's doing something, it's being creative. Yeah. So um, where did you get your leather from? Um, at that time, I got it from really various places, but I mean quite a lot from, there's a warehouse in London I used to go up to and um, used to get stuff from there. And in my early days, I was buying bits off eBay. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't like so much today. Well, I think there's a slightly better sort of hobby market for leather pieces. You had to scrabble around a bit more. So this was in 2014. Yeah. Um, when I sort of kicked off. So I, I basically took anything and everything I could. Mm -hmm. And 
it was quite good from that point of view because I tried different levers and I made quite a few expensive mistakes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's learning. I always joke and say learning is expensive. You know, yeah. it's, it's interesting. <laughs> so, so how did you refine your skills? Because 2014. Yeah. So, um, I, so I largely learned. I got. I'm one of these people who probably likes soaking in knowledge from anywhere and everywhere so i bought quite a few books um which were quite helpful and read those cover to cover you know how it is when you're doing something you're fresh to it i find i'm a bit like a sponge i i soak up every bit of information i possibly can um i watched endless youtube videos (laughs) which i found very helpful um i belong to an association of woodworkers in the UK um, called the Bodgers. And some of those people are leather workers. So mm-hmm. I was able to, um, you know, ask them questions and get advice. So really it was a matter of looking around anywhere and everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and just trying to pick up little bits of information and then a lot of experimenting and a, a lot of, you know, making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing. I think, with so many, whatever you take up with craft, I think it's very easy to think, oh, well, that doesn't look very good or I'm not managing this, but you just have to keep going. And, yeah, I always sort of, when I'm doing a new product or something, I know it will take me at least four goes before I get it, even in a condition I'd want to put it to market because you're, you know, version one, you decide, oh, no, that's, bit too short or a bit too wide or something version two you think oh i haven't got that right you know and, and yeah. so it goes on yeah and it is it is so true i that's one thing i, I did notice when i started it, it is like a sheer perseverance and determination like it's just a repetitive um yeah just you just have to do it over and over again. And it's, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing because you, I don't know with you, but with me, I, I think where my lot of, when I'm growing up, I played a lot of sports. So I wasn't really exposed to, or I guess, you know, in some ways I was exposed to, you know, hands on things, but it's one thing to be pushed to do something. Like for example, if you're playing a sport, you're being pushed by the coach to do something. Whereas mm. when like a hobby, you're sort of, you're pushed by yourself. So you don't yes, have you, right. you don't have to do another wallet. You could just stop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? No, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So... I think um for me also, because I'd I mean, my father was always like make do and mend kind of thing. Yeah, as a yeah. child. Um sort of my parents were okay, well off sort of thing, but money wasn't that flush, so it was very much make do and mend and i think after obviously the world war and everything shortage of materials yeah and so i grew up in a bit of an environment where if something needed doing around the house out would come the tools and you know be a bit of woodwork or a bit of bending curtain track or and Mm -hmm. i picked up subconsciously and i don't think i realized it at the time but i picked up a lot of skills just watching my father do things yeah. yeah, heating metal and bending it and realising that when you heat a bit of metal, you can bend it more easily and silly things like that, but which have actually been quite useful applied to leather work. Yeah. Sharpening a wood chisel is not 
dissimilar to sharpening a leather cutter of some sort. Mm-hmm. The principles are similar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, since then I've become a bit anoraki about sharpening. And, you know, I've read numerous books on it and <laughs> try to get better at it. Yeah. Yeah, what's, um, what is your method for sharpening? Is it just this... Oh, because you don't, you don't really need to sharpen leather tools unless they're... It's mainly no. stropping. I mean, I've bought quite a lot of second-hand tools where I've often had to re-grind edges and things like that. And I have a large, like, whetstone water wheel. It's a Tormek wheel mm-hmm. which i use in my woodwork so i can reprofile stuff quite nicely and then i either use flat diamond stones yeah uh, the monocrystalline type so they're the dmt type stones or i use um wet and dry paper yeah yeah and i find that's really good and then i finish off with strop with compound mm-hmm. that's that's most of my knives i just strop them now and again yeah yeah um I had a skiving knife, I still have it, and I've had it for quite some time, and the the tip of the blade was all, had all dents in it, like, yes. um, that sort of stuff, <laughs> I and, know. and what I he did, he knocked around a bit, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, just not taken care of, and what I did, because it was bothering, it was a super sharp knife, because I stropped it, but I still had the dents in the end of it, and I'm not sure if this is what you're meant to do, but I, I YouTubed how to take dents out of a knife and some guy was i think he was like a chef and he was like you you don't go fully on top of the blade like you don't have a 90 you don't have the blade pointing down it's sort of on an angle yes a bit yes anyway so i was doing that but then i just went like straight across the top i was like you know what? i don't care and i took the thing <laughs> off but it was so blunt i couldn't believe how blunt it went but I've sh- I sharpened it back up using uh, uh, wet and dry paper. Will that is that fine then, or have I like have I completely damaged the blade by doing something like that? No, I think that's fine because sometimes you do need to like re-establish the profile. Okay. It's very much like sharpening a handsaw from that point of view. So I have done the same thing. I have literally um gone straight in at 90 degrees taking the edge off and then you can see the curve you know you can see exactly what you're getting and then i've started working on slimming it down yeah. on one side or on both sides so no i i personally i mean again i think we're sharpening you know you can get five lever workers together and you'll probably get eight <laughs> different methods for doing it but i i personally if something's very badly damaged then what I do, I, I get my water wheel out. Um, it's a like a sharpening stone, but it runs in a bath of water. Mm-hmm. So you don't lose the temper of the blade. You keep the you know, nice temper of the steel. And I do the rough profiling on the water wheel. And then I go down the grits, as I call it. So yeah. I usually use some flat diamond stones at 600 grit and 1,000 grit. Yeah. And then I go on to the strop. Um, if I have something that is perhaps a very fine cutter of some sort, I recently, and it's really good actually, very cheap, I got off, um, it was, I think it was Amazon, but it was a batch of wet and dry paper going up to like 6,000 grit. That's all right. And if you got something like, I mean, I had some very fine shoe cutters, you know, t- tools used in the shoe trade, and it was fantastic because you could work down 
your grits going from like a thousand and then go down to like two thousand yeah. three thousand and you really could get this edge which under a microscope yeah. was pretty perfect and the, the cutting you know ability was sort of in a dream world it was lovely it takes mm-hmm. a long time yeah. but for one or two tools we had to get a particular edge really useful for my everyday leather working tools i just used the 600 and thousand grits and yeah. then the leather strop yeah and that okay. that's great <laughs> okay because i'm not sure if it was me but afterwards i did that how i it seemed like the blade got a lot more sharp a lot more blunter quicker when i would skive is that a common thing or is that just because the the blade's so sharp it, it blunts a lot more easier from sharpening it should hold its edge okay. really i mean i find uh because it's cutting leather, which to an extent naturally strops it. Yeah. Okay. It should. It shouldn't lose its edge quickly once you've got it sharp. I, I find. I mean, I'm tend to partly for safety rules because I once ended up in A and E. But I do once I've used one of my knives, I tend to put it straight back in the case. Yeah. Because they're pretty vicious things if you. I mean, I put my hand into a bag with a you know knife just slightly out of its leather cover, and um, it didn't improve my thumb. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, it should if it's a reasonable you know if it's something like a George Barnsley or Dixon or Osborne. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the cheap tools are actually still very good steel in them, mm-hmm. and you get them if you do a bit of work on them, they can come up pretty good. Yeah. It should should hold an edge. Yeah. Yeah, I want to get one of those George Barnsley's because the skiving knife... i got two skiving knives, just the straight one, which I don't really particular like. And then i got one that looks like a George... Oh, it's not a George Barnsley. It's one with a wooden handle, but the blade's reversed. Yeah. It's more of like for a left-hander, left-hander whereas I'm yeah. right-handed. And... So, yeah. I'd like... I, I use a um, what some people call a head knife other people call a quarter moon knife but uh, you know the classic half what, moon knife that what is joe like uses a, yeah like joe yes yeah. i use one of those and in fact it, it, it is a george barnsley one mm-hmm. and i find it's really good because i use that for skiving quite a lot yeah and for cutting um and i like it the other Believe it or not, a skiving knife I do quite like. It's the ultra cheap ones you can get yeah, on the likes of eBay, yeah, like three pound or you know, they're, they're dirt cheap. And the steel is extremely good. The handle's a bit bulky, but the actual steel of the blade holds its edge. Once you've got it, you know, honed up, it's it's good. Yeah. And yet it's so cheap. Yeah, I'd like to get one of those round knives, but stropping it because there's so many. Could you have to strop it on certain angles because there is, yeah. Is it so? It's e- it would be easier to strop that one that you got with the one that Joe I think uses. It, yeah, that Joe's you know, head knife, quarter moon knife. That they're they're good because once you've got them sharp, it's just the occasional strop, and it's job done kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's not too large an edge to maintain. Is the traditional half moon knife, you, you know, which is like the half round knife, the old Sadler's knife. Personally, I think that's too much edge to have to maintain. It's yeah, that's how I also, feel. Also, <laughs> to me, because I'm probably a bit clumsy, I expect, 
I find it quite dangerous um, because I tend to sort of not see a corner or get too close to a sharp corner and you've got this lethal thing, you know, on your desk. So I prefer the smaller quarter moon, the head knife, um, because it's a bit more compact and I think it's safer on the bench. But that's personal again. Yeah. I know there'll be people listening who are saying, oh, no, you know, you can do X and Y with a half moon knife and, you know, what's this guy saying? So fair enough. <laughs> is the is the quarter moon knife, can you push with it or is it more of a roll? Yeah, you know, you can. You can. Okay. I mean, I personally don't. I, I use the, um, like, fabric cutting safety knives so these are the round that oh, yeah. often go under the names of daffa or olfa and they're like a disc yeah cutting edge and i mean those were cut through thick bridle leather they're they're not so good obviously for doing a curve but if you're doing straight lines they're brilliant because you you know they're very sharp you can resharpen them if you want to um and they're safe because they have safety covers yeah which you just click with, you know, click of your finger and you've got yeah. a cover on it again. So I, I personally really like those. Yeah. Yeah. But again, as I say, <laughs> people have, you know, favorite ways. And just because I happen to like that way doesn't mean to yeah. say it's. <laughs> do, do you have horses for courses? Do you have cork on the bottom of your ruler? Um, I have rubber on the bottom okay. of my smaller rulers. Yeah. yeah. So they're yeah. basically, they're. Um, Linux safety rules. Yeah. So they have a raised edge on one side, which is at 90 degrees to keep your knife upright. Mm-hmm. And then they have like a little rubber strip underneath. Yeah, because they I... go under the tra- trade name of Linux. Yeah, I need to get... find them very good. Yeah, I need to get one of those because, yeah, I just have metal and I've noticed that sometimes it can leave like a metal scratch along the surfaces. Okay, yeah, yeah, so... yeah. Where can you get them from? Uh, Amazon has them in the UK, so I okay. imagine they do. Yep, in Australia, um, it's L I N E X. Okay. Linux. Yeah. Is the mate. Uh, I'm sure they're equivalents. Yeah, they would be. I think it's sometimes called a safety rule. Yeah. How did your YouTube channel come about then? Oh right, okay. <laughs> that came before lever work. Um, at the time, this was in I think it was 2012. Um, one of my sons was doing a digital film sort of degree and I was out one day in the garden bending the back of a chair and we sort of joked about oh we could make a video of doing this you know and share it and then he said well of course you could pop it on YouTube mm-hmm. and so it was a bit of a joke up went this video um, it was partly a bit of a laugh it was partly him having a go at doing a bit of editing and filming and what have you um he was young at the time relatively um and um <laughs> yeah so we did it and of course it got a bit of interest and then i thought well, actually i could do a few more of these it's quite good fun so i slowly you know produced one or two more videos and got into it that way yeah so then what made you decide to do, was there even, was there, there, there would have been leather workers posting stuff on YouTube? Yes, I'm sure there would have been at the time. Yeah. So, then... so, um, yeah, so I went through a sort of, I suppose it was a bit of a creative journey in a way because I had always done the woodwork. Well, I 
did posted a lot of woodwork on this channel. I then sort of posted pretty well anything and everything that just took my interest, which is the thing you shouldn't do on YouTube. You know, <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> people like Joe has got it absolutely right. She she makes her channel leather work. It's very clear. Mm -hmm does splendid content, you know, you know where you are kind of thing. I went a bit typical me covering everything, um, which leaves your sort of viewers thinking, what's this channel about? But, um, yeah, I went, got onto blacksmithing because I, I wanted to learn to make tools for my woodwork. So I went on some blacksmithing courses and then I did some blacksmithing videos to add to this channel which they were very popular. I mean, now there are a lot of blacksmiths on YouTube, so um, it's changed probably. And then it's probably about 2014, I put up this video, which I would probably completely cringe at now, of making a little riveted knife sheath. Yeah, I found, I, I found that. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, if anyone needs to sort of, if you're feeling at the moment you've just started out in the hobby and you're thinking, will you ever get anywhere? The answer is yes, watch that video because you can see that I've learned a few things along the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, was, I, was, I found, because I was looking at your, that blacksmith video of where you turn the old car spring into like a spoon. Oh, yes. So three, yes. It has 3.3 million views on it. Yes, just... uh, yes, one or two of the videos, it's strange, they, they um, take off. So, I mean, that one, I think it was a bit of, it's a bit different. You take basically a car spring off a BMW motor car <laughs> and um, you turn it into this like cutting tool to make it hollow out, very obscure, hollow out the bottom of bowls and spoons in wood. Uh, but it was something which I think it was a fun video. It was shot in some woods with some friends. We were all having a bit of a laugh. And um, it captured the movement, really, yeah. of people, you know, having a bit of fun and a bit of people teasing me a bit. Yeah, I like the uh, made in, was it made by, B, has made by BMW. That's right, BMW. <laughs> yeah, I kept that bit. I was I very like that. conscious of, yes. <laughs> so you started off with tool covers. What did you expand onto after that? Yeah, so I had quite a sort of play around with different, types of tool covers um i made quite a few axe covers because of woodworking people getting in contact with me and this threw up a sort of like a fundamental thing for me about whether i did things bespoke or whether i did batch small batch production and i found it was really good in the early days doing bespoke work because you learn a lot. So I'd get someone sending me in dimensions of, say, an axe or something else, and I would model it up in a block of wood and make a nice cover for it. And you learn different techniques. You know, you learn to get very good at doing welts. You learn to get very good at doing your skiving and your stitching and what have you. But when I came to start to look at the profitability and that was something which was always at the back of my mind. I, I wanted this interest to become profitable. I realised that every email going to and fro was probably costing a couple of pounds. Which sounds crazy, but if you think to do an average commission, you're probably talking about 20 emails going to and fro. It's yeah. a lot of lost time. So I began to then think about doing small batch production and I started off doing bags. And I thought a good sized item to sell because a bag, you'll hit a price point. 
which is big enough to allow you to make a nice quality bag with nice materials positioned in the market above the sort of very cheap bags but below the branded top name bags but something of nice quality and i i did bags for quite a while and i sold quite a lot a lot of bags but i think this is where you come to sort of wanting to know your customer base because i had some very loyal people buying pretty well every kind of bag i did <laughs> there was obviously a market there <laughs> but what i noticed was because there were largely women's bags i was doing a lot of people when i went to craft fairs we can get obviously direct customer feedback you see your customers looking at items and either buying or not buying i began to realize that the bag market you really can segment it and uh, what a lot of people are looking for are bags which they can change each year with fashion or to match their outfits. So to produce a very nice quality leather bag, it's going to last more than a year or two, but it's not going to carry the brand name, which another group of people are looking for. You know, some people want to see Gucci or Coach or a, 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 you know, a, a famous brand name on the yeah. bag. And... So you're so slightly in that market, your position is, well, you're not doing the cheap stuff because there's no way you could compete with yeah. the big factories. And besides, you're using lovely leather and lovely materials. You're producing something which is, you know, up there with the good mulberries of this world and possibly even actually better made. But you've not got the cachet or the brand name. So I found it was a very fickle market. Um I, I did quite enjoy it, but it's hitting a price point where you're giving really good value to your customer, but at the same time, it's managing to get your customer to understand why it is costing what it is. Yeah. It's quite difficult. I, they, I actually yeah, like, actually, sorry, I actually like yeah. that point you made because, because you, you know, you, Fashion lines, fashion brands have their seasons and they'll sell, you know, their jumpers and this season and once that season's gone, it's gone. Whereas a leather, you know, a bag made out of vegetable, t vegetable tan leather, that's not going to, that's going to be around next year. It is. I'm... I mean, the, the bags, you know, I was making were of a similar le leather to say in the UK, we have mulberry bags, which are lovely quality bags. And it's similar sort of nice calf leather. But I think the problem is to sort of your customer will not necessarily understand the, the, the level of quality they're buying. And yet you're having to obviously charge quite a lot. <laughs> the thing I found with craft fairs generally was one had to be very careful to choose the right kind of fair because I just remember one example I had. Um, Obviously, a lot of your sales can be made around Christmas time. And I went to one which was at a um, a fairly sort of standard school-type Christmas fair. Yeah. It was a um, total disaster. <laughs> People just didn't sort of understand. They were not looking. They were not there to look for bags, basically, and certainly not to look for nice leather bags. Um, it was... Um, there were people with young families quite understandably you know they didn't probably have the disposable income 
do start buying fancy bags. Yeah. I had another market in an affluent area where the bags sold extremely well. I mean, it was literally 10 to 1 on sales. It was yeah. completely different. And I think, I mean, the great thing to me about doing a craft fair is you see your customers, you get to know what they like. They are handing the goods. They're asking you questions. You get to see what's important. You can get so much valuable intelligence to actually help you make a better product. Yeah. And you learn a lot. You know, I, I think they're really good from that point of view. The downside to me is that they ta- obviously it takes time selling at a craft fair. Yeah. Some sort. Um, I mean, fortunately, nowadays, e-commerce stores, you can get them to automatically reconcile your stock. So if you sell at a craft fair, you're not having to do stock adjustment when you get home if you're using one yeah. of the big you know, e-commerce sites. So that problem's gone, which is something. Because I can remember spending many a time trying to reconcile my website after a sale to what I'd sold, you know, and things like that. But that, that headache's gone. But you yeah, get you get some advantages to me and some disadvantages. <laughs> I, know, I, I love hearing craft failure stories like you know someone you know someone comes up and they just the fact you know the the belt what they say i said it, I said it on joe with joe you know someone said, yeah you know i could just go to the target it's just like well yes exactly <laughs> go to your local supermarket you know why, just... why pay a lot for a belt when you can buy you know in the uk a high street 10 pound belt yeah just what your customer you know, needs to understand <laughs> is that they won't go saggy if they buy a nice quality, you know, Joe Hurd dog collar or belt from Harry Rogers or whatever. It will be, you know, a nice bit of leather which will mature with age, will probably see you out, see your lifetime out, you know, and it's comfortable to wear with nice rounded edges. And so it goes on. It's sort of totally different product. But, of well, course, understandably, they look to the casual eye, very mm-hmm. similar. I'll ask you this, because I made a tote bag some time ago, and that was all hand-stitched and everything. And, and they asked, like, what the price was, and I told them the price, and <laughs> didn't, hear, <laughs> didn't, didn't, hear, no. didn't hear back from them. Do you, in the bag world, do you think they should be hand-stitched? Do you think you're better off just having a machine compared to hand-stitching? I, again, I suppose it's each individual to decide what segment of the market they're aiming at. Yeah. I think to do hand-stitched bags, it's obviously going to be a very limited market because the cost, when you add up the cost of materials and put a time on your work per hour, the number of hours it will take you, you're going to have to be charging a very high price. Yeah. And when you factor in all your overheads and everything else, it is going to make it a very premium product. Now, there are individual leather workers out there making bags like that and selling them. I went down the line of thinking, well, I'll use sewing mach- industrial sewing machines and I could turn out a bag at a far lower price point. I was aiming at a market sort of segment if you like which was higher than the high street um basic you know high street bags but lower than the top brand name bags yeah 
I didn't find it an easy ride. I, I did sell quite a lot of bags. But when I came to analyse my profitability, so if I actually, and I cover all of this actually in my guide on my website, which um, you mentioned in the intro, which I, I sell this guide for charity, um, so order proceeds from my running a business guide goes to charity. But I've put in there some formulas for pricing. And when you run through all your input costs, so your time, your labour, your materials, all your overhead of running a business and having all your equipment and everything else, you're, you, you can look at your profitability of how much profit you make on making a bag versus making a wallet or a belt or a dog collar or a fishing bag or a tool bag and decide, you know, which part of the marketplace you think you can best serve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I think there's nothing like going out there, trying it, doing it, seeing what reaction you get and yeah. taking it from there, you know. And I think there's a lot to be said for starting small with all of these things and seeing what works. I mean, I've had a few failures along the way, you know, going back to my tool cover days, I saw a great emergence in people cutting grass with scythes, the old traditional yeah. scythes. And there's um, national competitions. People, again, spend ages sharpening these scythe blades. So I thought, ah, oh, great, I can make leather covers, lovely long leather covers for scythe blades. And I made a couple. And a guy who was like a national competition winner looked at it and said, oh, that's lovely, you know. But he said, most of these people you'll find wrap these things up in old jeans. <laughs> it just it just goes with just like the territory and the nature of scything. Keep it simple. Don't get fancy. <laughs> and so I, I did sell a couple, but I struggled to sell a couple. Yeah. They looked lovely. They were at a keen price point. But no, the... the that particular you know group of people fair enough i can see why chose just wrap them this long blade in a leg of a pair of trousers yeah why bother you know having a fancy cover yeah that's actually a good point so what would you do so what do you, what advice would you do if you're not selling a product but you know that it's really good and, and there's sort of that temptation i know probably most of the crafters find where if you're not selling a product there's a temptation of, oh, well, I'll buy more leather to make another new product. Yeah, it's a difficult one. I think with a lot of this, we're talking about, um, I don't want to sound condescending, but it is about educate, educating your customer. If you have a, a way of explaining to your customer why something is expensive, I think all of us are more inclined to buy something. So, I mean, YouTube in my case, it's a great vehicle for that because I can show the making of something and people will see, oh, yes, there's all these steps and, oh, yes, you know, these things are done to it to make it nice. And it's a very visual way of people seeing. But um, I think, again, though, it still <laughs> comes down to you. you have to work out what things you're making are actually worth doing and which ones aren't. Yeah. And finding your little niche market where yeah. you, you know, there are plenty of little niche markets out there. I mean, people, just as an example, do very well on watch straps because people buy a nice watch 
and they don't want the plastic strap that comes with their Apple Watch or whatever it might be, you know, their fancy watch. They want a nice strap. So a nice, you know, hatch leather strap or something nicely bespoke, there's a market there. Yeah. Do, do you like giving business tips? I quite enjoy it, yes. I yeah. don't think I'm... I think I only have an opinion. I wouldn't claim yeah, to okay. be, you know, any smarter than the next person. I've Obviously, with the Levercraft, I've been through a lot of experimenting and a lot of trying different things. And I've learned from quite a lot of mistakes along the way. So I've got the benefit of some experience. Yeah. But I think anyone seeking advice... Um, shouldn't just take my advice. I think they should listen to other people and get advice, you know, across the board. But, yeah, I certainly think that I have something to offer because I've tried different things and found what works for me and what doesn't. And, yeah, I think that can help. (laughs) So what advice would you give to someone who, like, that doesn't have a YouTube... So, like, they don't don't have, like, a system where they can... You know, they some people can see their items made and then decide that they want to buy them. Would you just say get out there and do markets, or yeah, quite a lot of my friends um, make wooden items, and they sell those by demonstrating in public making them. Yeah. They'll go along to like a country fair or something, and be carving particularly things like wooden spoons and making baskets. And you can see it and, you know, people get interested and then want to buy. I think nowadays you also have to think a bit sort of out the box because sometimes there's more, if you're looking at making an income, there's actually more income to be made, not by selling the leather goods, but selling the training to make leather goods or selling other experiences like... um, workshops you know there's more than one way to crack a nut if you (laughs) see what i mean i mean (laughs) i think you could in theoretical speak have someone making just 10 leather products a year but if they actually perhaps did pattern packs laser cut you know leather shapes or something they could actually have a very good market supplying the enthusiastic hobby market with making things yeah but there are different ways, I think, of looking at all of this. Yes, you can go for the basic, I'm going to make a product, you know, like a bag or a belt and sell that. Or you can say, no, actually, I think there's more to be made in training and providing some, like, plans or in providing day experiences, making something. Yeah. Or maybe doing a combination of both. Yeah. Have you ever done a workshop? I have, yes. Oh, really? I ran them for a while. Um, very much enjoyed them. Very hard work. <laughs> uh, but very fulfilling because you get people, you know, six or so people coming in for a day and you'd get them doing something like a notebook which would have all the sort of features of leather work like cutting out, skiving, stitching, wet moulding. And um, they'd go home with something which they had made. Yeah. And that's a great because you're sort of spreading the word. People are having a chance at trying something. And you're learning a lot yourself by watching people do it. Yeah. 
But sometimes people say, oh, you know, have you ever thought about doing this? And you think, oh, wow, that's quite interesting. You know, you get little conversations yeah. going on. So, no, it's it's very nice, but it is terribly exhausting. So <laughs> some people maybe find it less exhausting than I do, but I found it really quite quite a drain on my energy. I'd be shattered where, on the end of the day. Where did you do it? I I did most of them in a local church hall. So I hired a room, put the word out on social media. I was running courses, and um, people would buy them and come along. Did you? Where did you get all the tools from to do it? Because you you need a lot of tools. Yeah, you yes, do. <laughs> Mind you, leather tools these days. I mean, you can buy tool sets off the web. You know, yeah, which may be of not the best quality, but if you sort of sharpen them up and maintain them well they're perfectly good for starting out yeah i mean i know we all like to have our, our nice you know quality tools as we get into it but actually i think sometimes people sort of let the tool get in the way of doing the job and some of the cheaper tools that the steel is actually perfectly good in them you just need to spend a bit more time sharpening and profiling yeah. them and I guess with the journal cover, you wouldn't need to skive it anyway. No, no, you, you wouldn't just, have to. No. But you, what, what I used to do, actually, was I would pre-skive half the journal cover. Yeah. So they could see what it should look like. And then they would have a go at the other half. <laughs> oh, okay, yep, yep. And I cheated. I skived on the machine. So, you know, <laughs> it's quickly whipping through, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Done. Yeah. <laughs> So it probably looked like brilliant sky thing. I did admit it was a machine, but, you know, it's... Yeah. People can then, you've got the time to actually take each person through yeah. the sky if they need help. It is fiddly and tricky when you first do it. How do you charge with workshops? Do you... I think you need to do a combination of things, really. Is look around at what typical workshops cost. Okay. Yeah. yeah people are charging consider what your own costs are so obviously you've got a room probably to hire you're going to need some insurance of some sort mm -hmm. and you're going to need to do quite a bit of preparation to make sure you run a good workshop that's a good experience Plus. and you probably need to get your materials and you need to have some capital for your tools so it's the kind of thing you need to give it a fair bit of thought but I think then you can say, okay, I'm X hours here, X hours of preparation, materials overhead, yeah. and come to price. I found that if I had about five students, that was a nice number where I could keep the price down because I wasn't seeking to make great money out of this. It was something I wanted to do, which brought in an income. But I was also, to be frank, partly just wanting to get people out there doing leather work and experiencing it. Um, I was able to go away with a reasonable day rate. It was worth me while doing it, but it wasn't, you know, a great thing to do, but it was very enjoyable and very satisfying. What, what do you have? So, them, did you have them using pricking irons and yes? Yeah. Yeah. Stitching. And all as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, doing the chisel, stitching chisels. So oh, okay. Stitching. So all the way through. Yeah. 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 yeah all the way through. Yeah. Just Keeping it as simple as I could. Just get them to do like box stitching. <laughs> That's it. Yes, saddle stitch. Just understand <laughs> the principle, and then yeah, you get on each course. You'd often get one or two people who would think, oh yeah, actually, I like this. I'm going to take it further. You know, and it's do it's some, nice to see. Do some like French binding or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, <laughs> turned edges. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. Because I I would like to get into teaching eventually. Because I've always yeah, I'd like to um something about teaching. Uh, yeah, it would be good to. Yeah, it's, it's like because you become you see your transition from like the apprentice to the teacher. You know. Yeah, it's that, good, and it's I think that growth in a trade. Yeah, yeah. And you can do it one-to-one if you want to, yeah. you know, give the experience of a one-to-one session. Did you ever do one-to-one or just...? No, I did it pretty well, just in small groups. Okay. Um, yeah, I think because I... I mean, my workshop isn't very big, so I sort of thought, no, I'll do this out and about. I did a few, like... um at big woodworking events i'd run leather workshops and things like that as well but i did most of them by hiring a hall it was easy yeah because it provides facilities for people so they could get a lunch or you know use toilets all that sort of stuff it was easily done that way and it was nice because it was you got the camaraderie of everyone getting interested in something together and nice banter in the room it was it's an enjoyable thing to do. Yeah. How much time do you do workshops usually go for? Are they like thinking of how if you're going to make a leather product, what would you make? Like how, I think how... you need something fairly straightforward. Yeah. Um, again, I mean, I found because people are in a learning environment. You don't want the day to be a long day because people get quite tired when they're learning. So five or six hour day was probably, and also some people are traveling quite a lot to get there. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, best not to have a long day. So something simple like a, a card holder, a notebook, a watch strap, a set of napkin rings, something attainable within a day so that they can go home with something. Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. It's get full experience of making and Yeah. Yeah. I think we've all had it, haven't we? Where we, we make something and it may not be the best made item on the planet, but we take pride. Oh look, I've made that, you know. I, I know with my woodwork I might try and do something and I may look at it and think, Okay, well it's not as good as someone else's whatever, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. And I did it. <laughs> That was my first kangaroo wallet I made. I think the stitching took me like three hours to do. Yes. Yeah. And I still have it. And I remember looking at it and I was so happy that I actually, you know, made something. Uh, What glue do you use? Do you use white glue or contact cement? Right. I've changed a lot along the way. So I started out mostly using white glue um and then as i've got more and more into my shoemaking journey 
um, called the glues galore in shoemaking. And I've tended to pick up, I quite like um, the Rainier Aquilim 315, which is a water-based glue, um, very kind to the environment, and a very nice glue for holding leather for stitching. Do you, so use, that, do you use that on shoe soles? No, for okay. the actual soles, which take colossal, obviously wet, you know, water yeah. and everything. I use, there's another, um, it's another Rainier glue, but it's, um, I'm trying to think of its name. It's, it's what I nicknamed a strong one. It's a, a not a very kind glue to both your health or the environment. So I don't like to use it, you know, more than I absolutely have to but when you're sticking a rubber sole onto a shoe yeah you're obviously strongest glue going because that's the thing with the equilium 315 because how i actually came across it was actually from a shoemaker who uses that so i thought that was actually i think she might use it for her soles as well okay so i guess if you're stitching the sole as well you're reducing the risk but um I mean, I use it for all the assembly of the upper of the shoe because yeah. you can, it's excellent. It's got a good holding property to it and it's really good for all the sort of, you know, assembly side. When you've got your feet going through lots of water, because it's a water-based glue, I don't think I would want to trust it yeah. when there's another product, which I know will do the job and the cobblers yeah. Yeah, use the other one. So, yeah. I, Again, I wouldn't claim to be a great authority on shoemaking. I've just been dabbling with it. But it's very interesting. I wanted to try something which I knew would be a challenge with the shoes. Um, there's very little that's available on the internet yeah. about how to make shoes. Um, Andrew, I think it was Andrew Wrigley's name, but a guy did a very good YouTube series probably about 10 years ago now on making a pair of um, shoes which is it was such a great series i watched that years ago and was really inspired by it and i watched it again recently thought yeah i must have a go at this and andrew he was such a, a good teacher on his youtube series it was in the early days of video and i think he had one or two technical problems in some of the later videos where it got a bit more difficult to follow what was going on but i thought let's actually research this myself a bit more and have a go at doing something similar. Mm-hmm. So it's, I sort of feel if you watch what he put up, watch what I put up, you'll get a rough idea of how the, the principles involved. I mean, I think a lot of proper shoemakers would laugh and say, we've done this wrong. You've done that wrong. Yeah. You know, my repost of that will be, well, unfortunately there's not much out there. And if people want to have a go, yeah it's better to have something to work on yeah i learned an awful lot about techniques um skiving techniques stitching techniques different glues um just by making different pairs of shoes and i mean i accept i it's a lifetime to learn to make shoes properly and i'm not for one second pretending that i've got any of that knowledge but i haven't but I think if you're a leather worker and you try something different, you're expanding your horizons. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're little like offshoots. You think, oh, that's interesting. I mean, just as an example, on the shoes, I did quite a lot of broguing, which is like the holes 
making a yeah. lacy edge on leather. Yeah. I thought recently, I want an axe cover. Let's put broguing on an axe cover. I'm That's just a bit cool. of a laugh. So I did that. You know, it's little things you learn, little things feed off. Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested in shoemaking as well. Because um, some of the principles are sort of the same, I guess, you know, especially with the upper, you know, it's just lead like shapes stitched together. It's just putting that onto <laughs> at last <laughs> is the is the hard part. Yes. And I mean, it's fascinating, but I didn't appreciate. I always assumed naively a last was the shape of your foot. And yeah. answers well, no, actually, you know, I was wrong thinking that because a last is a, like a form which makes a good shoe to fit your foot, but it's not the shape of your foot. Yeah. And so it's just so many aspects that you begin to appreciate. And if I had ever had any hesitation about spending, you know, £2,000 on a handmade pair of gents' shoes, I would... Yeah, if I, if I had lots of money, I now wouldn't hesitate in spending £2,000 on a bespoke pair of shoes because I can understand what goes into them and the skill that people have used. And and even last making, I said, that's a separate it is, skill yes. within itself. Like it's, not the, it's not like shoemaking and last making are. No, it's no. A, it's a, I mean, that's a separate I was skill. crazy and made my first pair of lasts out of a old gatepost you know i mean as it just so happened the shoes fit really well and i was lucky but i think that was more chance than you know design i've subsequently bought commercial lasts and you you do get a better obviously a better fit because yeah. they're designed just, you know for the job <laughs> you can choose different toes on the last can't you you can yes yeah. you can modify i mean Again, you know, I, I, I've only initially dabbled at all of this, but what I did conclude was you can mess around with the toe area quite a lot and it won't affect a shoe because the shoe is gripping your foot by the waist, by the sort of thinner, narrower bit of your foot and the laces. That's what's holding the shoe in on your foot. Mm-hmm. So the heel you need to get right and the waist of the shoe you need to get right, the toe area, as long as it's long enough, it doesn't matter so much. Okay. Yeah. But it's all these little funny things you start to pick up, which, I don't know, is quite interesting. Yeah. Well, what leather did you use to make those shoes? Was it... So for the um, formal shoes, I got some Italian calf leather Yeah. Um, for the top. And again... You learn a lot about all these different levers because you end up using um, like a, a medium weight lever for the insole so you can stitch it easily. For the outsole, you know, it touches the ground. You end up using a really hard lever. Yeah. And you suddenly realize actually in a shoe you can have like eight different types of lever. And you, got like the, shoe. you got the stiffness as well. Absolutely, yes, stiffeners which are going to soak in, and again, a different glue you can use for stiffeners. You can use a nice wheat-based glue, which water moulds beautifully. And, yeah, you you can take it into a technical realm, which I only just sort of got a taste from doing. I mean, I made the formal shoes in one video series. I then, (laughs) rather sort of the wrong way around, did some easy-make shoes in a video series, 
which are really comfortable, I hasten to add. And then I've been making some wooden-soled clog shoes. Yeah, so boots. It, yeah. What was the copper on the end on the end of your shoes? What was that for? Oh, that's called a toe tin. Okay. And if you were like a mill worker in a factory and you were leaning on the floor all day picking up wool or whatever, it would um, protect your shoes on the toes. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it looks a bit vicious. Yeah. I think I cut mine a bit too high. Yeah. I think uh, in retrospect, I should have made them both a bit bit sort of smaller <laughs> you've got to be careful you might cut yourself with them i guess but again you could spend a lifetime just learning how to make clogs yeah it's um i got a a taster and i appreciate now a lot of what goes into handmade clogs well, <laughs> you know it's i mean i think that's the beauty of leather work it's there's so many different avenues that you can pursue and you can transfer your skills from one area to another to a large extent. Mm. So, you know, some people love making horse bridles. Some people like making shoes. Some people want to make tool bags. You know, you can transfer a lot of those skills from one to the other. So I would certainly encourage anyone to try other things and see what takes your fancy. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, one of the beauty. Yeah, I'd like to get a. I want. I'm trying to get a shoemaker on this podcast. I've, oh, I've, right. Yeah, I'm trying to get trying to get one. So, um, yeah. yeah. If if I had to make a pair of shoes, it'd be out of that Russian hatch leather because you could actually make shoes out of it. And oh, you could. Yes, and there are some lovely commercial yeah. boots made from it. So you could. Did you? Did, what yeah. cork did you use for your innis? Did you use like the, the spread on cork? Okay, so yes, in the UK you can get spread on cork, yeah. which I know isn't available everywhere. Um, so I use that, yes, for the inner sole area. On some of my other shoes I've done, I've been using cork, just like sock liners out of cork, because it gives a nice bit of cushioning. Sock liners, what are they? Out of sheet, out of sheet cork. So you oh, know, yeah, the shoes, and then you file it. And you want to, yeah, make okay. them a bit softer to walk in. Yeah. So the clogs, I've been tending to put a sock liner in, which is probably totally wrong in <laughs> clog-making world, but it's oh, makes them a softer. Oh, you slide it into the shoe. Okay. Yeah, slide it into the shoe and cork sheet. But what's underneath yeah. the sole, though? What, on a... Well, like... on a clog, just wood, but... Oh, is it? Oh, is it wood? It's all wood. The whole sole is, yeah, oh, okay. a, a lump of wood, <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like so to make I'd like to make boots out of um I just love, I love the Aaron Williams design, that one piece stitched yes. in the back. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, there you are, I see. Yeah. <laughs> Something to have a dabble at at some stage. Yeah. <laughs> so got the elastic sides. Yeah, I I was actually I'd like to learn how to resole my shoes. Because I feel like that would be a good introduction to yeah the rest of the shoe. Like if you can resole, then it's like at least you have a piece down pat. And there's actually a lot of resole videos on YouTube. There are. The only thing I would probably the only thing I would do is I would just for the stitching I'd probably just take it to a cobbler just to stitch for me because I don't have a you know no yeah the full yeah and the nice big I, I guess I could um, do it by hand like stick an all through it but. It's quite hard work. Um, You'd have to do I a, ended cut up a channel a, and all that. A Dremel to make a hole. You know, drill. Oh, did you? 
Yeah, and one lot. <laughs> yeah. But um, what did you use for yeah, the that... what did you use for the shank? Um, I use wooden shanks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So fairly stiff bits of wood. Yeah. I heard the Romans used to use nails. I heard. Yes. Yes. And in fact, a lot of um, boot makers, you know, in the likes of Texas. They'll use, they've got a name for them, which I forget what it is, but it's, they'll use like a six inch nail flattened on its head. Yeah. I think they call them penny nails or something. But anyway, they use a nail as, as the shank and they bend it obviously all properly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole world of shoemaking. I mean, I just opened a door, tiny jar in my videos of it, but it's, it is interesting. Yeah. Um, But of course, there's so many other interesting things to pursue in life. <laughs> so, so, so actually, what what did inspire you to get into the shoemaking? Because you you were just watching videos, and that's what sort of. Got I think into. so, really. Yeah, I think it was. I saw it as a bit of a challenge, and I thought to myself, I haven't a clue how to make a shoe, and I thought, well, if I can make a shoe, I'll learn stuff along the way. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we've obviously with the COVID situation here in the UK, we've all been having to lock down. I mean, it's easing up now, but it's meant one's had a lot more time to explore craft. And I thought, okay, what would I like to achieve, you know, during this time? And I thought, well, one of the things I'd like to do is actually make some shoes. And so that's really what sort of got me going. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. But I'd certainly give credit to, I f- hope I got his surname right, Andrew, I think it was Richley or Wrigley on YouTube. Yeah. But, that... um, he put up a series a few years back, which I found very inspiring. There's actually uh, a girl, uh, what's her name? There's Silaventa who does some very that good... One. Yes, she does some very good things. She, she, they're quite in-depth as well, like what tools they to are. use. Um, so you've made three shoes so far. Uh, one, two, three. Yes, yes, that's, that's correct. Impressive. Oh, yeah, it, it is Andrew Wickley. So if you go onto YouTube... Is he Australian? I've got a suspicion, and I might be wrong here. He's probably from America. Okay, because there was it this might... what, there was this one shoemaker I saw. Yes, and he's like very in depth, and I'm he was Australian. Very good, done a very good book. Um, yeah, him. I, yes. Um, yeah, trying to think of his name. It may come back to me on YouTube. Yeah, the guy who I found very inspiring. It's a very it's ten years ago now. The video series, but it's Andrew Wrigley. That's W-R-I-G-L-E-Y, Andrew Wrigley. And he did a series on how to make a shoe by hand. W-R-I-G-L-E-Y, Andrew Wrigley. And he's done it with a minimum of tools. I mean, me being a bit of a tool nut, I ended up getting all the tools on the planet to make a pair of shoes. I just enjoy tools but Andrew I think he did a really good job because he he did it with just about five or six tools so he made it very very accessible for people is 29 is that 29 parts to it 
Probably, yes. Yeah, there's it... someone, someone made a playlist. Yeah. I just one of the favorite parts I have about shoemaking is the when they put it over the last and they do the nails and they pull. Yes, that's yes, just all of that. And then Little they magic. sky, then they sky it off. It's yeah, just, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's one of those things where, yeah, I could do that. Like the the theory behind it makes sense, but just doing yep. it would be another story. I know. Well. I... I felt the same, but I thought, let's give it a go. And I mean, <laughs> well, how did you, how did you go, do go lasting it? I mean, I, pulling it over and. Yeah, I just um, followed what I thought was the way other people. You know, you, you pick up all these little bits of information and you see bits of the process, but there's very little out there that shows you the whole process. So it's like anything in leather work you end up having to probably absorb bits here and there and then try and execute it and sometimes it goes okay and sometimes you do it and you think nope that's not quite right yeah and you have another go so i mean it's i think it's one of those things with the shoes i learned a heck of a lot doing it but i would never ever claim to be either doing it the right way or, you know, being an expert in it. Do you, yeah. do you know what I mean? I'm just being quite honest there because I'd hate all these accomplished shoemakers who've put their lives down to making shoes and do understand it all totally, to, you know, think I was pretending otherwise, but I'm not. But I I do think you end up appreciating yeah. what people do. And I think that's... And I think sometimes people in leather work are maybe a little bit scared to try something because they think, well, I'll never be as good as person X or Y. But what you will do is you'll learn to appreciate how yeah. something's done yeah. and to recognize it when you see it. So I don't know I, I, I'm a great one for having a go, but that's, that's yeah. part of my character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Loafers would be cool to make. They would. I was no end to it. <laughs> tassel loafers. So. There are sort of side shoots because one of the things that I was inspired by was the Texan boot makers who use, like, they make patterns in the leather. Yeah, yeah. And um, they cut out t- tiny filigree thin layers of leather and put other colours of leather behind. And they do lots of fancy stitching on top. And you yeah. end up this lovely effect, like you make flowers in a meadow or something. And I had a go at that for a knife sheath. And it made a very nice knife sheath. But it's this is what I'm sort. Of, I suppose I'm trying to say is you know our spin-offs where if you try something you yeah you get ideas. But <laughs> make a brogue wallet, whatever. It Absolutely, yes, yes. <laughs> Do like the pocket, the pocket. pocket. Yeah, nice one. Yeah, yeah that sounds good. So, so do you do this full time or? Uh, no, so um, I do the leather work roughly, probably. A, two or three days a week um i do bits of youtube as well and i do other things for my time but it's probably about two or three days a week roughly it goes in peaks and troughs Mm -hmm. so in the lead up christmas i'll probably be working pretty flat out um and then other times of the year like middle of the summer it can be quieter which suits me because i enjoy doing the woodwork and 
other things then so i go yeah. slightly cyclical with it all yeah um also you spend an awful lot of time um as i set myself up as a limited company you spend quite a lot of time with just sort of the admin and the bureaucracy you know run, when you're running a business it's you, you have an for every hour of your workshop you're spending an hour probably doing other aspects of your business be it promoting it yeah buying in materials yeah servicing custom inquiries packaging dispatch you, you know it's yeah i think that's the thing i didn't appreciate when i went um down the lever route of making it a business and it's not for everyone you know running a business isn't some people like to keep it as a hobby and i totally respect that um some people do want to turn it into a business but i think if you do you need to realize that the chance are you someone said to me before i set out they said you realize you'll be spending you know an hour on backroom stuff for every hour you're in your workshop i thought no that's that's inefficient that can't be true you know and actually it applies i think to most activities yeah. of craft if you're a blacksmith or whatever there's a blacksmith who told me that as it happened but um I, I would agree with it you know having experienced it if you look, actually look critically at the time you're spending yeah well, which is fine yeah <laughs> a, a lot of new businesses are sunk by overhead people don't keep control of all those other costs like the website um and you know the time it takes you to buy in materials and all that sort of stuff but i think as long as you're covering all your overhead costs then i think that's fine i tend to sort of work on the basis i take costs and then i take a rate for my labor per hour and i double that because of the time it takes on all the backroom stuff okay there are other variants some people use like a two price model where they'll work out a price doing one lot of formulae and then another price doing another lot of formulae which works better in some areas it depends on what the value of your input materials are versus the selling of your product because very often in leather work your material costs might be say only i don't know a quarter of your actual selling price quarter or a third mm-hmm. so other things you're making it may be the lever cost is a lot more so it's you have to sort of what i'm trying to say here in a rather long-winded way is i think it's a good idea to have more than one pricing model yeah and then of course you're into with pricing a whole range of things because i like to look at it bottom up and look at what it's costing and what i think is a fair price because some people would argue, no, if that's all wrong, what you should be doing is looking at the maximum price you can sell something for. After all, that's what I imagine the phone companies are doing when they sell us a mobile phone. They take a cheap bit of, you know, microchip and put a huge price tag on it sort of yeah. thing. And you could take that view. I mean, I think you have to use some common sense and you have to look at what you think is going to work in the market you work in i like to do it where i look at what i think is a fair price 
so I, I do work out all my costs. I then look and think, well, is that a fair price? I look at what else is in the marketplace. If I was buying something and think, well, is that going to be good value to my customer? If it's not good value, I drop it as a product line. If I think I could come up with something doing all of that, which gives my customer a good, fair value product, yeah, then it's a runner and I'll yeah. go with it. Okay. Sort of thing. I cover this a bit more in my guide, actually. So in my guide, I talk a little bit about the pricing formulas and about pricing models. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just give that a plug only because if anyone wants to buy it, UK, it's, I think it's eleven ninety nine, and all the profit from that um, goes to support a good charity. So I'm not making, I am not making a bean from it, but it is going there to help other lever crafters and it's going out there to help obviously support a charity, which in a time of COVID is, you know, something all charities need a bit of support. So, <laughs> no, th- thanks for that. Thanks for your time, Harry. I appreciate it. That's been lovely, Joseph. It's nice to have a chat. And, you know, I really admire you doing these podcasts. <laughs> because I've been enjoying hearing, you know, all the other people you've had. And yeah. It's very nice when you're in your workshop working away. It's, it's a very positive thing that you're doing here, spreading lever working. So thank you very much. And okay, thanks, thanks for having me along. Thanks for that, Harry. Okay. <laughs> Good.